Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. Everybody is in at lunch right now, so we're lucky to have a, a quiet spell in which to record, unlike our previous uh, recordings of the day. Uh, this is, of course, also part of our speaker video series, sponsored by Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties Limited, and Turner and Townsend. This is always a weird time during the forum because it is eerily quiet right now. We're usually trying to combat with you know, a whole bunch of noise and a thousand people walking around. So let's take advantage of this while we can. Let's luxuriate in the silence for a minute. Our guest over the lunch hour here is Glenn Way, president of GWL Realty Advisors. Welcome, Glenn. Great to be here. Appreciate you guys inviting me. So we always like to kind of just start with the career history. So why don't you just explain kind of how you ended up in real estate, how you ended up at GWL and what that story looks like. When I went to university, it was the University of Guelph. The first year that I went there, I was taking a commerce program and they offered a real estate major. I'd never seen that before and I was intrigued by it. And so I went into the real estate major and there was 13 of us in that class. And I, I think what was unique about that is when I started looking for summer work, I would send resumes out to all kinds of uh, organizations in Toronto. And I ended up getting a, a great summer job at a company called Enterprise Property Group. And there were two brokers that had just joined as partners to run a leasing division. And they were intrigued by the fact I was studying real estate and had never heard of that. So that was really a fortunate opportunity for me. And the reason it was so fortunate is because I got to meet a few people that were in the business. So I spent a couple summers doing that. And I graduated from school. I sent a resume to an article that was, it was in the Globe and Mail looking for an analyst on a commercial debt desk. And- uh, the letter, not email, I'm assuming. That's right, yeah, exactly, hard copy. <laughs> not to page you or anything. <laughs> and in any event, I got hired. There was apparently 200 applications. They hired two people, and I, I credit being hired to the fact that, A, I had a little bit of experience, but two, I had two people known in the industry that had vouched for me, if you will. So I spent a little bit of time working at that group. I managed to get a pretty good fundamental understanding of value and valuation. And then probably more importantly, I actually did a couple of deals. So I was able to actually place some debt on a couple of properties. And my phone rings one day. I'd only been there for nine months. My phone rings one day. It's a gentleman by the name of John Peets. He worked at Cadillac Fairview. He was leasing the Toronto Dominion Center. He said, Glenn, I just had lunch with uh, Tim Lowe and Tim was a guy that I had worked with as a summer student. And he said, Glenn, Tim said that I should meet you. I'm looking to hire someone. So John and I have a handful of conversations and next thing you know, I'm offered an opportunity to be a, a junior leasing person at Cadillac Fairview's Toronto Dominion Center, downtown Toronto. And I jumped at that. It was an incredible opportunity. What year was this just for context? It would have been 1996 when I started there. So, okay. 90, so near the end of the sort of big recession at the start of the next cycle. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. So yeah. So I had a great opportunity working with Cadillac. It was a fun company. It was an exciting company. I got to do a lot of deals. I was kind of thrown into the deep end quick. The market was, had been soft and was just starting to gain a little bit of traction. Yeah. So I spent a number of years there getting to do a lot of deals and uh, had a fair amount of freedom. And when you start a new role, you don't really know exactly what you're doing. And there's 20 people you're supposed to tour and who's the broker and what's their role. And, and you, you figure it out quick. You learn quick when you're, uh, when you're thrown in like that. And so that was a huge opportunity and really a little bit of network as a young person. And uh, now I got Cadillac on my resume and it was through that where they had developed the Young Corporate Center and sort of Midtown Toronto, Hogs Hollow area. And London Life was the 50% JV partner. And GBL Realty Advisor, Great West Life had bought London Life. So next thing you know, I'm presenting to these guys as partners. 
And it was through that they got to know a little bit about me. Next thing you know, there was a bit of dialogue with them and GWO Realty said, hey, we'd love for you guys to join us. And I'd been used to working downtown, sort of shiny towers, and they wanted me to go to Markham. Admittedly, I I didn't know a whole lot about Markham, what was going on, but there was the tech thing was sort of starting up and it looked like a company that was just on the cusp of some growth. So I joined them as a leasing person doing, again, transactions. And from there, every time there was an opportunity for me to do more, I took it. And so I'm leasing in Markham. And then they said, hey, you know, could you maybe lease our Mississauga office as well? So you pick up more asset classes, different market dynamics. And uh, I was happy to do that. And shortly after that, they said, "Uh, this is going well. Why don't you get out of leasing, get into asset management? Why don't you go to Mississauga and run this office, lead it? And so there was an office of about 65 people there. I jumped at that because A, it was new, it was different, and B, there was a fair amount of leadership involved. So I was doing that for a stretch of time and it went well. And then they said, why don't you pull in Markham as well? So now it's kind of a suburban Toronto thing. So you're learning a lot the whole time. And then they said, you know, why don't you move back downtown Toronto and run leasing for everything? I thought, hey, great. I've been in the suburbs for a while. Come back down. So I did that for a year. And then they're like, you know what? We'd love for you to run our GTA office downtown from an asset management perspective. And I guess I started to earn some trust. And uh, ultimately from there, it just kind of kept growing. And, And sometimes it might even feel like I was taking a bit of a step back, but Whenever there's an opportunity for me to learn something new or learn a new market, I always took it. And, you know, that kind of turned into Eastern Canada for commercial. And then that sort of turned into Canada for commercial. And then that turned into, hey, lead our residential platform as our COO. And I did that for a number of years. And and then, you know, just now recently, I am where I am. What's the moral of that story? From my perspective. Say yes to everything. (laughs) Yeah. Get comfortable, be comfortable being uncomfortable because I've been at this company for over 20 years. Um, My scope has probably changed 10 times. And every time you do something new, it's new people. It's new. Like to me, it's you're earning trust, you're earning respect, you're having to work hard and just hope things go well. And you kind of, you know, follow your heart and do what you think is right. And hopefully others believe in you. And yeah, it's been a really good run. There's a thirst for learning and education there too. It seems like, like it was just something you, not necessarily, I mean, I'm sure behind the curtain, or at least in the back of your head, there's always sort of career strategy and career objectives, but learning something new and getting exposed to something new is a, is a, sounds like anyway, the way you described it was a big piece of that. Definitely. For me personally, everybody's different. Boredom is not something that is uh, exciting or intriguing to me. I remember one point where I thought, wow, the water's calm right now. It almost <laughs> felt a little too calm. And, and then all of a sudden something clicked and there was a new opportunity. So I would say, yeah, always be prepared to do different things. And there's no perfect path from my perspective. It's not like I'm writing the path. It's a little more Plinko. And if there's opportunities, don't be afraid to grab them. And if, if you have a chance to learn, that's usually going to be a benefit to you. It's a great visual. We're all just a bunch of Plinko chips. <laughs> <bumping around. laughs> it's pretty amazing that arguably the start of your career was the start of this cycle that's just ending now, you know, one of the longest in, in history. What you learned in 96, 97, 98 will finally become relevant again in 25, 26, 27. What would be, you know, the big advice uh, as we head to the next cycle for opportunities? And obviously very different than 1996, 97, 98, but there has to. It probably hasn't changed very much. Did you answer, but uh, from my vantage point, whenever there's pressures or pressures on the market, I mean, it does generate opportunity. There's going to be players within the market on both ends of the spectrum. Some right now are positioned beautifully. They're well capitalized and they can pounce on weakness. You're going to have the other end of the spectrum where, you know, maybe people got uh, used to really, really cheap money and uh, hockey stick shaped rental curves and, uh, you know, might be struggling right now. So there's always opportunity within a market. And, you know, from my vantage point right now, it has been challenging. A lot of people compare it to the 90s. In the 90s, early 90s, the theme I know within the industry was survive to 95. 
And so you know, you've heard a few people say survive to 2025 right now. It's interesting being at the forum this morning, seeing the mood of the audience. I'm sensing more optimism than not. And I think that's just part of the nature of people that are in the industry that we're in. <laughs> yeah. uh, is that just ignorance? Which side? There's a wrong word. Yeah, that's maybe the wrong yeah. word. But is that just uh, blissful hope, hopelessness? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you yeah. frame it. Yeah, I think it depends where you sit on it. I come on the investment side of things. And so from my vantage point, if you have a portfolio that's well diversified, if you're a group that is not you know highly levered and never really has been, you, you can have pretty sustainable revenue lines and you know we have properties generating cash flow and if you start looking at some of the asset classes look at industrial for example right now you know fundamentals are still strong even if they were to weaken or degrade and i look at the composition of our portfolio and i look at over the next 24 months and say what's rolling over and what are the average contract rents in place across the country and how does that compare to market well there's still plenty of upside, even if rents were to come down. So it's going to generate more cash flow. And you might have other asset classes where there's pressure on it. But when you net it all together, if you can have predictable, sustainable cash flow, that's kind of what we're after. And so now's the time. I think there's opportunities people don't typically see. If you look back 2018, 19, and something good was for sale. There's a huge lineup on the bid side of things and not a lot for sale. And the tables may be turned a little bit where there could be product available and people can look to move up the quality curve and position themselves for the next run of uh, the sun shining. I want to talk about, I mean, we'll actually get into kind of your position right now in the market. But I mean, before we go there, we should probably just talk about where you are today in GW Realty. So size, scope, asset yeah, classes, just kind of run through that, and then we can talk about sort of the fundamentals. Yeah, sure. So GWL Realty Advisors, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Canada Life, which is underneath the Great West Life co-family, which is a very, very large enterprise with tentacles that are uh, broad. We have about $17 billion in Canada, or 250 properties across the country, so national platform, vertically integrated. We're very active developing right now in all the major markets, particularly in multifamily. We've crafted in 2018 a brand we call the Livemore, which is a very high quality, very highly amenitized, purpose-built multifamily product, which we continue to build out and have a pretty big pipeline in that regard. We're an office player as well across the country, Industrial is a big category for us. And we do have retail predominantly, not predominantly, all needs of life, you know, grocery anchored, something that we'd love to grow, but it's not easy to do that at scale. What about your staff? I just You seem like someone that I like these questions and some people don't, but <laughs> let's just talk quickly about the size of your teams, growth of your teams. And I maybe and just to hone in on the kind of the, what I think is an interesting questionnaire or line of questioning, entering this sort of challenging marketplace, near not nearly as busy as we used to be, a lot more uncertainty in the marketplace. How do you set a tone and a culture for your staff yeah. as the leader? Yeah, so there's 750 people in our organization. They're reading the headlines that we're seeing every single day. And, and so to your point, I think it's from my vantage point, we have to remind ourselves that this is a long game, that we sell assets, buy assets and develop assets with frequency. And sometimes when people hear, oh, we're going to dispose of something, it can be viewed as a negative or scary. But sometimes we're making a disposition because we're crystallizing a really good return. And we believe that we can redeploy that capital in a place that's going to perform better in an asset that has a better ability to compete in the future and over time. And so to me, it's really reminding people that ebbs and flows within the market, but real estate, commercial real estate is a long game. And we don't want to get too rattled by looking at, you know, what's 30 days in front of us as opposed to thinking with a long-term mindset. The allocation towards real estate as part of the, the larger enterprise, what's the strategy there in terms of holdings over the next two years, call it? 
if I think throughout my career, the allocations to real estate have done nothing but grown, which has been a real positive for a lot of people. Um, you, you know, you're starting to see some folks that are maybe at the top of their allocation at the moment. But, you know, there has been a bit of a movement just to increase allocation in the alternative space. And you're seeing more organizations sort of branch out of the traditional assets and into alternative real estate holdings. So, you know, from my vantage point, I think, you know, the allocations are likely to hold or maybe edge up a little bit. I don't see them backing up to the asset class. Okay, but maybe we, within that umbrella, heavier on the alternative. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think if you look at Canada and you look at the fundamentals, I mean, there's no question, you know, multifamily, the Century Initiatives, I don't know if you guys are familiar mm -hmm. with the Century Initiatives. So, you know, the, the objective and goal is 100 million people by the year 2100. That's a huge... It's a lot of people. It's a huge tailwind. And so um, that's an opportunity to play. Everyone reads the headlines every day. Uh, supply is something that's desperately needed. And so it's a category that we intend to continue to invest in. And if I look at what our organization has done over the course of the last five years, we haven't been selling down office. We've been investing in industrial and investing in multifamily. And that's really brought those allocations up as opposed to shrinking our office allocation. Is that trend continuing? I would say that that is continuing. Yes, that's if, if I look at the pipeline of opportunities that we have, we have a, a, a lot of shovel ready sites across the country and those are really geared to multifamily and to industrial. There will be opportunities in the office over time. Those will be the areas where I would say it's the most likely you will see major flows. The sites you have, are they green light to keep going ahead or are you looking at... Uh... Most recent project that we greenlit was a 400 unit building at downtown Montreal. So that's uh, phase two of a, a, what we call Le Live More. So this summer we made the decision to proceed with that second phase. We have a couple that are uh, in the ground right now that'll be completed relatively shortly. So one coming out of the ground in Mississauga as well as downtown Ottawa. And then we have more sites across the country. We're always trying to sequence uh, having some shovel ready and then some through the entitlement process. And that land, is that through partnership, you acquired that land, what's that, how's that look? Yeah. So in, in terms of our business, we've got Jibo Realty Advisors, there's current company balance sheet money. That's one category or bucket of capital. Then we have a very large open and segregated funds, which has all kinds of institutional investors in it, and it's got some real scale to it. And then in addition to that, we have a, a, a handful of um, uh, separately managed accounts on behalf of third-party clients. So you're using, just leveraging their, their ownership, their assets to feed that pipeline? Yeah. And or uh, d depending on the appetite for those clients, uh, we're always trying to add to future. How's that going? If your portfolio has enough scale, there's often some embedded opportunity that sits within it. And so it's really like, you know, how do you, how do you harvest that? Now, having said that, we've been active buying uh, sites or covered land plays in places like Vancouver and other locations, so, you know, even downtown Calgary, we, we have a couple of great sites we acquired specifically for multifamily in mind. And, you know, at the time you weren't sure the market was there and uh, it's pointed in the right direction now. So when you're sitting around the room, and I know this is theory, but there's a piece of land for sale right now. And you're sitting in the room with the other potential buyers that, are, you know, would be pension funds often, you know, REITs, perhaps, you know, private equity guys. You've got an advantage because you, you seem at least, and tell me I'm wrong on this, but this is the way we kind of hear it at times. And, and for the record, GWL Realty is a, a great client of First Nationals. We participated in lots of, of the Live More projects and, and uh, hope to do so in the future. So there's, there's some familiarity here. But the way I kind of feel, and, and I have no ground for believing this, there's no one, nowhere have I been told this, and I want you to validate it. You have a longer horizon to look at some of these IRRs than others, right? Because you're matching against liabilities on the life insurance side that allows you that luxury of saying, hey, you know, I'm matching against 10, 15, 20 years versus some of the other players are really looking at 
more mandatory fine or rates. yeah earlier terminal cap rates and things like that is that true i think it's fair to say that most of the capital that we work with is very long-term in nature or a healthy proportion of their investment portfolio is long-term in nature they may have segments of it that are shorter term and trying to torque out some extra return but i think that that's a fair comment that uh, we're long-term and we're really focused on generating cash flow and cash flows that we think we can grow over time you talked about disposition but how often are you selling an asset in any given year, we're always buying, we're always selling. So yeah, I mean, we, we've been active on the disposition side, you know, over the course of the last 24 months, we've sold a handful of assets. Any direction in there on you know, geography mix uh, shifts or what was the driving decisions behind the sales? Sometimes uh, you have an asset class that's well thought of and, you know, we might look at the ingredients and say, hey, this is a great location or the physical attributes exactly what we want. If we were looking today, would we buy it? I think a lot of organizations years ago, as their allocation to real estate increased, they were trying to fill that bucket. And then you kind of have this scale and you have this garden of a lot of properties. And then over time, you start kind of pruning and harvesting and trying to maybe curate your garden yeah. a little bit better. So maybe a better question is, what's the average tenureship of those assets you've sold? I mean, how long have you owed those assets on average? Like they're all pretty long standing assets that have kind of gone through their useful life right. under your portfolio. And now it's just time to let go. Yeah, that basically. Would be a, that'd be a fair yeah. comment. Yeah. yeah. So as we all try to uh, survive to, to 25, what defensive positions are you taking? What are you doing to, to manage risk that we've got in the market right now? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're always talking to our leasing teams about what's the right strategy and approach in terms of positioning our product and positioning our assets. You know, in many respects, I look at how are we being defensive or maybe it's really a little bit of offense in that I look at our organization and, and say, what have we been doing over all of these years? You know, what could we be doing? So if I think about our organization, where are we at? Where should we be? I would call that the performance gap. And that's where your leaders, like every organization, everyone's always trying to twist a few dials to be the best that they can be. But then where could we be? And so I kind of look at it and try to spend time thinking about where could we be and leveraging what we have. If you're national, you've got a boots on the ground type of operation. You're very well sponsored. You've developed capabilities over the years. How can you leverage that? And so from our vantage point right now, we're really focused on expanding the menu of investment vehicle offerings that we have. And that's an exciting area for us to be. It would be net new. And we view, you know, the idea of developing closed end funds, which we haven't in the past being complex complementary to our offering. And so those are the types of places we're spending energy right now and really trying to position ourselves for the future. So I know you talked about how we defend against risk. I would say the bulk of our portfolio already is performing pretty well. If I look at how we've performed against the MSCI index over the last 12 months, over the last 36 months, performance has been very strong relative to that index. Now, I appreciate the index hasn't been blowing the doors off, but outperforming that, I think, is a reasonable place to be. Never really been a terribly risk-heavy organization in the first place. So, so this is not a big shift for you guys to take a more measured approach or continue, I guess. You're really not changing anything, probably. Yeah, I'd say we're just trying to, to, trying to expand what we can do. What's the biggest worry for you? What keeps you up at night, if you put it that way? For me, I really believe that our organization, it's people. People are the heart of our business. And if you think about every single person that we all know, they all have their own story. They have things going on within their work environment and outside of it. And I would say it's about the people. That's what would keep me up at night. There's all kinds of things in the market that, you know, you can't control. But what I care most about is our people. And that would be where my worries lie. Yeah, because you've done your job properly and structured your portfolio the, the way you, you, you have. All those various 
variables that occur in the environment, you've insulated yourself. You prepare for them before they arrive. Yeah. But, uh, maybe that's why I said defensive is the wrong word. That implies you're scrambling to right. you know, fix a problem, but uh, in the portfolio like that, you'd be prepared for a little stormy weather. We're almost out of time, but maybe the, the best last question is the opposite. You know, What are you excited for? What does 2024, 2025, assuming you survive there and beyond, look like mm -hmm. for you guys? What are you working towards? For our organization, we've recently gone through a fair amount of succession planning. So, you know, we, we've kind of got a new group of people that are sort of at the senior table right now. So there's some rejuvenation there, which I think is exciting. And I think that the market is setting up for some people to take advantage of it. And we want to position ourselves to do that. And from my vantage point, again, where could we be as an organization? And I think there's a lot of opportunities out there and, and I'm excited about what we could look like five years from now. So keep the head down, keep working hard and keep remembering the sun's going to shine tomorrow. It will. And have a good mindset. Be kind to people. Work hard. Be positive. Attract good talent. Look after the people that you work with and make sure that everyone's bought in to the goal and the ambition and good things will happen. As we head into the next 22-year cycle, hopefully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully. We are at a time, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. So thank Glenn. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to the forum for hosting us here at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. And of course, thanks to Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio, and Turner Townsend for sponsoring the uh, speaker video series. And thanks again, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, guys. Welcome to the podcast after show where I talk about the conversation we just had with Glenn Waite from GTBL Realty Advisors. Of course, if you're still listening, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I think if you made it this far, you like what you're hearing. So please. So that live more, I didn't get a sense to, I didn't get a chance to, it didn't really fit with the conversation we're having, but a bit of a tangent here. I always find it really interesting that apartment owners, particularly the large guys, don't brand their buildings more. Like with their name, did they create another? Just with their name. I mean, so, I mean, and it's not just in apartments, but I think apartments is, is, is the easiest one. But if you even think about like retail, like RealCan does it, you know where it's a RealCan center because they proudly put their name up there. But there's a lot of retail you walk in, it's just a sign. There's no indication of who the owner is. I, I've never really understood that. But particularly for apartment buildings, that brand, brand recognition, brand acknowledgement, the loyalty that you'd get to a brand, and they've recognized that. You have a live more brand. Every GWO Realty apartment building that's being built is a live more and they want you to live there, love it. And the next time you go rent an apartment building, or if you're talking to a friend or a family member that's looking at renting, they're saying you should find a live more building. They're amazing. They've got these amenities. They've got this sort of structure to them. Here are all the things that you get at a live more building. And I got to imagine that ultimately ends up with a better rent with a stronger NOI. A few more cents per square foot. Yeah. I mean, we can think you kind of addressed it, which is they associate it with a better standard of living associated with amenities. Uh, so you, the branding that you do see, like groups that are really heavy into creating, you know, experience around their brand is the brand new shiny buildings. You know, you, you don't see it too much in the older class, maybe for the reason it's harder to create a real atmosphere if what you're offering is reasonable accommodation at a reasonable price. Fair. No, you're absolutely right. But Capri will, right? Like you, when you drive by a Capri building, you know it's a Capri building. There's a big sign out front that says it's Capri. But they're also transitioning, but they're transitioning out of older building into newer products. So maybe it's all one and the same. <laughs> maybe I'm just out of luck here. Anyway, if you own thousands of units, brand them. It's always good to hear leaders talk about people. It's nothing if not just a collection of knowledge. You know, there's the, even addressed it that, you know, people are having difficulties in their, I guess, in their life. It's something to think about. It's strong leadership to not just think about, you know, driving the machine forward all the time. 
Yeah. He's a really interesting person, obviously. The position he sits or the seat he's in, you know, with that amount of capital, with that level of horizon of investment returns, the ability to go kind of anywhere in the country, the focus on high quality, low leverage, low risk. It's just insulate, 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 protect the investment. You know, you don't need to hit home runs. You just need to hit a whole bunch of singles over and over and over and over and over again, right? At a billion dollar level. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll win the game, right? Because if you just constantly hit singles, you're never striking out. It's a win-win, right? And he's got that patient capital, right? And lots and lots and lots of it. So it's a really, I mean, what a almost envious position to be in. Well, it'd be interesting to compare, you know, the underwriting for say a merchant builder whose entire time horizon and investment could be three years, you know, two years entitlement, two years construction, and then out versus, of course, I mean, I don't even know what time horizons they would consider. You always hear about 50 years kind of being the number and what that changes your perception of viable markets to build into. Like if you're doing, if you're doing a four-year horizon, you need to nail the market. Well, and you heard, well, exactly. And you heard it. We, we, I asked the disposition, oh, we just, we, you know, we sell assets all the time. Well, because we've owned them for 30 years. And so that 30-year IRR has maxed out and now we're getting rid of this asset, right? Like that's, it's a very mature business and it's, it's uh, very sophisticated and what an institution. Like I, you know, like I said, it's almost an envious position to be in if you sit in his seat and have that kind of availability of super patient capital. Making, you know, landmark transactions and landmark developments. Yeah. Like if you're sitting there in front of a computer, you're like just Google live more and what, what the amenities look like and the space looks like. I promise you, you will want to live there. Thank you for listening to the after show. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.